0: This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. I'm the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining me. Student-based budgeting has been a concept that's been introduced, well, for about 20 years or so, and it has begun to spread throughout the country so that Today, some of the largest school districts in the country, such as the New York City school system, the Boston school system, and the Seattle school system, have all experimented with this particular approach to serving students And schools. It's an idea that's particularly attractive in large cities because it is in large cities where the issue arises as to how do you allocate resources across the schools within the district. Well, this idea was begun at scale in the Seattle public school system back in the 1990s. And I am fortunate to have with me on the education exchange today, Joseph Olchevsky, who was there, who was present at the creation, I might say. He was there when this idea was developed and first implemented. And he's ever since been the leader in the education community over the past 25 years after serving as the school superintendent in Seattle. He's uh, gone on to serve on a a wide variety of for-profit and non-profit and some public sector educational institutions and he's currently serving on the faculty at Johns Hopkins uh, University in its School of Education where he teaches courses in leadership. So I'm very grateful to have Joseph Alchevsky with me here on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, Joseph, for joining me. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor to be here. So let me start at the beginning and say, what is student-based budgeting?
1: Yeah, I mean, at one level, it's a very arcane technical thing. At another level, it's a pretty dramatic uh, change. Some would argue revolutionary change in the way schools and school districts the way school districts fund individual schools and has, uh, has dramatic impacts in the incentives and the dynamics under which a school district is managed and a, a school district is led. Um, you know, you said in the introduction, I, I, I was at Seattle Public Schools. I joined the district as chief financial officer. And um, I had not had a career in education, so I didn't know what the financial practices were in in school districts. But I I quickly found out, Seattle schools, but really every school district in America, and let's remember there's 15,000 school districts in America, all had the same methodology for funding individual schools. It was called staffing standards. Staffing standards.
0: Yeah. So that meant that you had to have so many... This is and that's for every such and such number of students? Every school
1: got a principal, every school got a secretary, every school got a librarian, every 28 kids got a teacher.
0: It was pretty good
1: at counting adults, not very good at counting kids and acknowledging the differences. So what we created in Seattle, it goes by student-based budgeting or sometimes it's called weighted student formula. It's this idea that instead of um, allocating staff out to schools you should allocate dollars and attach those dollars to kids so as a as an individual family as an individual student chose a school uh, money would follow that kid to the school door and so in seattle schools we had twenty five hundred dollar kids we had twenty five thousand dollar kids because so what's we would the, wait. what's the difference? Who, yeah. who gets $25,000? Yeah, we would weight it based on personal characteristics of the student that we knew were indicators of educational need. Um, okay, we all know kids in poverty um, uh, uh, do not perform as well academically as kids not in poverty. We all know that kids that are still learning English Um, uh, struggle academically relative to kids that English is a native language. We know there's a wide variety of disabilities that are out there, um, from more low-grade disabilities, maybe low-grade autism, those sort of things, to very severe disabilities, medical fragility, those sort of things. So we created a method whereby we could weight the amount of funds attached to any individual kid. And so a school An individual school, John Smith Elementary, in order to get um, funding to hire teachers, they had to attract kids, and those kids would bring money with them.
0: So how much difference does this actually make? Sort of let's assume that the old system uh, was uh, benefiting some schools more than the new system. So how much are they losing relative to what they had, and how much are they gaining relative to what they had under the old way of... Yeah, I mean, just think.
1: to set this in context, Paul, um, these staffing allocations are over 60% of the budget of every school district. So it is no overstatement to say the budget of a school system is predicated on these allocations. So it's a it's a big number. I mean, it was Seattle Schools, when I was there, was, say, a $400 million budget. $250 million of that was tied up in the staffing allocation. Um, well staffing standards created one allocation out to schools weighted student formula created a different allocation and there as you suggested there was clearly a redistribution um and i would say some schools gained over ten percent other schools lost over ten percent so i mean it was a real
0: redistribution you could call it winners and losers um but well, who once the money gets to the school, who decides how it's going to be spent? Did you decide that at the center, <laughs> your, your yeah. superintendent? Uh, now, I, now I'm, you have the money. Now I'm going to tell you how, how to spend it.
1: Well, when people first hear about weighted student formula, they they always want to get at who got more money, who got less. That's that's one redistribution, and there are winners and losers. That is a true statement. To me, the much more interesting redistributions are focus on other dynamics. The dynamics of power and authority inside a school district. If you are in a staffing standards school district, the central office is dictating what the staffing is at every individual school. The principal is really a branch manager. In a weighted student formula district, the school receives dollars and they have to create a budget and a staffing plan that best suits the kids in their, in, in their school. So that that principle now becomes much more of an education entrepreneur. Um, So I think, while your first question was about the redistribution of dollars, the redistribution of power and the dynamism, the dynamics around moving from a kind of a centrally planned, I've used the word Soviet model of delivering education to much more of a market-based dynamic model, where kids, as they choose schools, really are driving the dollars.
0: But haven't principals gotten pretty used to being branch managers? I mean, are -hmm. are principals really up to sort of figuring out, you know, this is the best way to allocate the funds at at my school? Or how much trouble did you have on the ground putting this into place?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we certainly heard that argument. And for a set of principals, they weren't prepared to do that. But remember, we had when every single school district in America had had this branch manager mentality. We knew we had to provide a lot of support and a lot of a lot of training and um, TLC to our principals. And you know, I benefited from the fact that there were a lot of principals in the process of retiring, so I could attract new principals. And we were hiring and training principals to really adopt this entrepreneurial model. And. I will say this, I mean, people said, oh, nobody's, you know, it's going to be the rare principal that will do it. I would say the opposite. It was the rare principal who didn't want to go to a more dynamic. I mean, we had a few that, you know, sort of were in the heck no, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Um, But if I had 100 principals and over 95 of them eventually got to the place where they said, this is, you know, I can, I can create a school. That that I believe in, that I believe can serve kids, and that's a powerful place to be.
0: But doesn't this plan also require that you give parents a choice of school for their child? Because you want that principal to have some incentives to bring in more students, so they yeah. can get more resources. So I that, think it that's works. That's not tremendously. possible unless right. you've got choice. So how does the choice component? Yeah, come I think to it play? works
1: tremendously well in tandem with, you know, I mean, our our vision certainly in my time period was, you know, kind of unleashing some market-based dynamics and um, having parents have the ability to choose the school that's best for their kid. It starts there. You know, you make the kid the core free agent of the district. When that kid starts bringing money to the school, then you really create power and dynamism at the school level and the principals then are responding by saying, how can I make my school better so more parents choose my school? Remember, Paul, you know, in Seattle schools, we were, you know, a fairly good-sized district, you know, 100 schools, 50,000 kids, Um, but we had been bigger earlier. Um, so we had excess capacity. You were like
0: other big cities around the country. You were losing people to the suburbs. Uh, Correct. Uh, so. and,
1: and we had probably 15% excess capacity, meaning more seats than there were kids. So this competition for enrollment was real, um, meaning if a school didn't attract enrollment, um, they would shrink and shrink quickly and were at risk of closing. So um, you're, you're, I agree with you 100%. The tandem of kind of market-based dynamics at the, 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 at the student level and then market-based dynamics at the money level is a pretty
0: powerful tandem moving forward. Well, in order to really use this as a tool for making educational progress, uh, you've got to have good principles. Yeah. And so how did you do two things? One, get some good principals who could adopt the vision yep. and secondly how did you you know edge out those who weren't so yeah appropriate right I mean I made it you know the principals were my people
1: I embraced that uh you know as a superintendent I wanted to be closest to the principals I did know there was going a retirement wave coming up so I knew I could appoint a lot of new people but I also had to you know, work with the principles I had. I think, you know, we're giving them power and authority through this process. You give them training and support. You know, you give them some TLC. You change central office to move it from a thou shalt central office to a how can we help you central office, right? Um, that all is, is very real. And then for me, I really took on, you know, let's see, in my five years as superintendent, I appointed 75 of our 100 principals. So I knew my selection of principals was going to be a big imprint on the principal core. And, you know, I recruited principals based, you know, on a, on a core kind of personality profile of We didn't need somebody that was going to work well in a branch manager operation. We needed a dynamic, vision-oriented, somebody that could rally, somebody that could motivate others, someone that that could really go out into the world and tell the story of that school and attract parents and attract teachers to to their school. And that's a different profile but i was very happy and i think a lot of people even my uh, you know my most ver verdant, uh, fervent um, opponents uh, when i when i left the superintendency would have said the principal core
0: was my greatest legacy in many ways well but then you probably had to find a way to let go some principals, but don't they have almost a, a right to the job, If even if it's not formally yeah. a right, it's informally? I mean, how do you get rid of a, a principal? It's, it's really, you know, the principal,
1: in a very state-to-state and district-to-district, we had a teacher contract and a principal agreement. So we didn't really have a principal's union, but they sure walked and talked and smelled like a union, mm-hmm. right? And with many of the employment protections that teachers have, I knew very well that if I was going to stake a claim to the strength of our principal core, I had to address the issue that there are some principals that were not up to snuff. And so there is a process codified in state law and district practice that maybe like a two-year very administrative bureaucratic process to terminate a principal, and I said, and it hadn't been done in a hundred years, and I said, no, we need to, we need to do this, and we identified a set of principles, four principles that really, you know, we didn't think were up to the job, and um, went through this two-year process, tried to get them there, they eventually didn't get there, and, you know, just to give you a sense of the bureaucratic process, Paul, we, uh, There's a specific day, May 15th, where you must notify them of termination. If you notify them before May 15th, it's null and void. If you notify them after May 15th, it's irrelevant. Well, what if it's Sunday? (laughs) I I think they do modify it for that workday, right? And... uh, but so I, I dutifully on May 15th, I, I met with these four principals back to back to back and told them the news. And, you know, it was hard um, for them. And, and, you know, obviously I, I, I take no relish from terminating someone's employment. But when I knew they weren't serving kids to the degree others could, I, I felt we needed to move forward. And, uh, you know, it was a big deal in Seattle. It was a really pivotal moment in my superintendency. The next morning, um, you know, the newspaper, above the fold, front page above the fold, extra large type. You know, my press secretary called it a plane crash headline. Um, Seattle fires four principals. and um, So what did the other principals think? Well, you know, I went to them. And we were in the process of renegotiating their agreement, otherwise known as a union contract, but they didn't call it that. It was an agreement. And I proposed a significant raise. They didn't ask for it. I proposed a significant raise. And we negotiated the terms of this agreement that they got a significant raise. And I went to the next principal's meeting and I said, you know, a few things have happened since we last met. One is I've had to terminate these four. And second, everybody in this room just got a raise. That's not two things. That's one thing. And that one thing is I'm committed, while I'm superintendent, to building the greatest principal core in America. And if you are committed to doing that, you remove low performers and you incentivize high performers. And I just did both of those things. Well, everybody in the room that day walked out feeling like, hey, superintendent just said greatest principal core in America and I'm part of it. You know, I'm one of those. So I feel really good. And it created a certain pride, a certain belief. I'm still in touch with a fair number of principals in Seattle schools. I haven't been superintendent in 20 years and I'm still in touch with probably 15 of the 100. Um, And so I, you know, I stake my claim to that principal core and when you commit to making them great and giving them the tools to do it you get people really rising to do their best work
0: well so why hasn't this idea spread more rapidly I, i appreciate the fact that Innovation takes a long time to yeah. spread. I mean, the charter school movement started in 1990. It, now about 7% of kids are enrolled in charter schools uh, 25 years later. Yeah. This reform mm-hmm. starts a little bit after that. Uh, it's got 10%, actually a higher percentage. Yeah. But it's still 90% of the schools. Yeah. Yeah. 90% of the students are still in the old-fashioned yeah. system. Why? Where's the resistance? What's
1: well, I'd say a few things. Um, one, you know, I gave a talk, as you know, Paul, to uh, to uh, one of your colloquia here and um, two years ago, and I called it the slow revolution, right? I mean, it is a revolution. I believe that, just like I think charter schools are a revolution, and, you know, they've gotten 8% in 30 years, and weighted student formula has gotten 10% in 25 years. That's a slow revolution. I, you know, we've been waiting a lot. Um I think, I think the resistance are several. Number one, uh, this doesn't work. This is hugely mission critical for the biggest school districts. You know, weighted student formula, student based budgeting really plays when you have scale. When you're dealing, you know, I had 100 schools, 50,000 kids. Okay, the issues of equity and consistency and all these dynamics, you're, you're talking about a large bore agenda. You know, if you are a small district with five or ten schools, it's probably less. You can hand manage that. So, for a big chunk of school district, you know, if there's fifteen thousand school districts in America, twelve thousand of them are too small to. Benefit so it's from. really
0: more a uh, kind of uh, maybe the top twenty-five percent of students yeah. districts in could terms could of benefit moments. could yeah. benefit yeah. yeah. No, I think that's right. So you look
1: at those, and I think the issues of, um, you know, you have to confront redistribution politics, right? There's winners and losers. School districts, politics hates winners and losers, right? Because the the winners stay home and count their money, and the losers come out to school board meetings with pitchforks, right? (laughs) And they hate that you know um so i do think i i do think it's it's uh you know i was blessed with strong school boards who were prepared to kind of stand up to the pitchforks um but um other places especially if you have a superintendent that has a short tenure you you know you got to have some duration to get this done um i also think there is a, a built-in resistance. Um, you know, many, if not most, of the places that have done this have had unconventional leadership, either non-traditional leadership, non-educator types, or people that have had a broader array of experiences, both in education and out. Um, I it's it's not common among school districts that have had superintendents that have kind of come up through the ranks, from teacher to principal to assistance soup because it's what they know. The staffing standards model is what they know. And um, sort of it worked for me back then, it works fine now sort of thing. So I also think there's a little bit of a, you know, I've worked my career to get to central office to have control.
0: Why would I give control away now? So how about the future? Where do you see this idea going? Uh, as we as we enter the post covid era so to yeah. speak uh, you know th- the world seems to want change the world also seems to want not change i mean there are a lot of incumbents who are reelected in the midterm so yeah uh, you might say the world just doesn't want change right now so where do you see us going in as we move forward
1: well i think uh, you know you asked a question predicated on a contradiction, and I agree with your contradiction, right? So let me speak to the contradiction. Um, On the one hand, I certainly think the era of the late 90s and through the first decade, 12 years of the 21st century, the world sort of wanted significant disruptive change at school districts you know our mutual friend Michelle Ray is a good example of that but many others I would include myself as one of them Um, but I think the world has learned that change disruptive change like that is painful and people get unelected and you get fired and you get yelled at and um, so I certainly think the last five years seven years ten years there has been a slowing down, a, an abatement of this type of large-scale change. And if you look at the adoption, uh, new districts adopting student-based budgeting, you know, they're really, I mean, certainly not in COVID, no one adopted, but even in the years running up to COVID, we had a couple of adoptions, but not, not many. So the momentum around it has certainly slowed. So um, I don't know going forward in that sense. Now, that being said i do think covid brought a couple of dynamics that are going to kind of throw this whole question a little topsy-turvy um i think we i certainly saw in among my friends and and in other school districts parents once covid happened started kind of Doing it themselves, a little bit of an unbundling of the traditional school model. And, um, you know, I'm going to go to Khan Academy, I'm going to go to Coursera, I'm going to go, I'm not going to take district PE, I'm going to go to some online program. You know, I mean, there was every, we always thaw, saw schooling as sort of a bundle of services. And, I think parents, and it started with the well-off parents that moved to the Hamptons or moved to Bozeman, Montana or or wherever, um, kind of unbundled. But now, increasingly, lots of people are unbundling. That creates, when we have a century and a half of everything being bundled at the school, the school being the nexus of decision-making and service delivery, now we have this unbundling and this DIY. Um, I think that's going to challenge
0: schools and school districts, and parents believe it. They should. Well, we have these education savings accounts yeah. now that uh, are supposed pots, to. Yeah. Right? So, this, so you're saying student-based budgeting actually fits in with some of these ideas that people are talking about.
1: Well, now we're to the contradiction. It fits in. It doesn't fit in at all right it fits in in the sense that money followed the kid to the school door but the unit of decision so in that sense yes it's absolutely aligned with all of this these micro schools and these pods and all that but where it's contradictory is the movement of the money ended at the school door or more to the point at the principal's door the principal had a decision to create a budget for the whole school. So, you know, we've had in several states, Virginia comes to mind immediately, Florida comes to mind immediately, this, this issue of parental rights. You know, I don't really care what the school is doing. I want this for my kid. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't want my kid to learn about evolution biology class. I don't want my kid to study U.S. history and have issues of race embedded in that discussion, right? So this, again, this unbundling, I call it that sort of atomization of choice, um, I think is, is kind of the genies out of the bottle to some degree of that. And what you get at is less than whole school, individualized to the kid, and back to your question, student-based budgeting takes the money to the kid, calculates the money at the individual kid, but all the decision-making stops at the principal's door. And this unbundling is going to drive it to end at the parent's door which is a, we've never had before. This is new. And it's, COVID has wrought this. And I don't think the world is ready to respond. I don't think superintendents are ready to respond. I, but um, the political power, you know, Virginia and Florida, again, are great examples. The political power of this parental rights issue um, um, as as a data point um, really, I, I think there's too much energy behind it. I think there's too much motion behind it. Um, the Weighted student formula, I, I think, is way better and better prepared to deal with it than a staffing standards model. But next few years is going to raise some really intriguing questions. <laughs> there <have>. Stay tuned.
0: <laughs> uh, so I would say, you know, It raises lots of questions, lots of questions, but it may be a way of answering some questions, too. So thank you very much, uh, Joseph, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. It's been really wonderful. I've been speaking with Joseph Olchewski. He's an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Education. And he was at one time the superintendent of the Seattle Public Schools at the very time that they introduced the concept of student-based budgeting. And he has been working in the education field in a variety of positions for many years since that time. So I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon Eastern time for an Education Exchange podcast.